Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. For some of you, it's good morning again. We are going to be, as you've seen earlier, in 1 John 3 this morning. 1 John is after the epistles of Peter, towards the end of your Bible. And if you have a copy of Scripture, find your way there. It's great to have a hard copy so that you can get some of the uh, mind mapping, the spatiality to the text. You can see the argument more fully in the text. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, that's a little more preferable than a digital version, but you know, kids these days. I'm going to set up the text as you're finding your way there. And then we will stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Apostle John writes this letter when he's in his 90s. He's an old man at this point. Peter started the church, Paul grew it, and John discipled it. The love of God plays prominently in John's letters and his writings, but in this letter particularly, he draws from his original nickname, which was Son of Thunder. Son of Thunder. In this letter, John gives plain and dire warnings against practicing sin, and he works and teaches, and the works and teachings of false teachers. As an old man, John is seeing the church of his Lord, whom he loves, being threatened by false teachers who would turn the hearts of people away from good works and obedience to the law of Christ, and in doing so, they were denying that Jesus was truly God. That, we see that in chapter 2, verse 22. That Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth and under earth must be obeyed in all he commands. And John, the son of thunder, is very dire in his warnings about those things in this epistle. So let's stand in honor of the reading of God's authoritative and holy inspired word. I'll tell you how we do it in our church. They're they're doing it now without me, uh, so maybe we can get a taste of home here. What we do is I say, hear the word of the Lord, and I read the text, and after that, I say, this is the word of the Lord, and the church responds and says, thanks be to God. So do you think you guys can pull that off? I'm sure we can. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Little children... Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we ask that today you would 
Guard us by your word and your spirit that we would be faithful to receive the word preached, that I would be faithful to preach the word in accordance with your holy authority and will. Lord, we pray that you would cut us where we need to be cut, that you would heal us where we need to be healed, that we might bear fruit in abiding with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Nehemiah Rogers, an old Puritan, says this, it is an old policy the devil has to choke out a greater good by a lesser good. It is an old policy the devil has to choke out a greater good for a lesser good, because he knows we're willing to accept a lesser good. The ancient serpent, the devil, as he looked upon the matchless glory of the sovereign creator despised God. He loathed, Satan did, the worship that God received. He abhorred the admiration that was God's alone, and he spurned God's exacting holy character and will. He reviled the eyes of God, knowing and seeing all. And one day, the enemy of our souls brought his rebellious scheme before God's beloved first people. And he asked, did God really say? It's a very simple question. Did God really say? And ever since that moment, man alongside the enemy of our souls, has made a practice of questioning God's unconditional sovereign rule by accepting slight modifications of God's holy standard. Incrementalism, which is an ism, is advocacy of change by degree. It doesn't look first to whether God says that it's obedience to him or not, it looks at what can we get. On the issue of abortion, it means advocating for something like a 15-week ban, and then advocating for a six-week ban, and then advocating for cleaner halls or admitting privileges to hospitals, and chipping away at branches on the tree rather than cutting out the root. My sermon title is Incremental Righteousness is Not Righteousness. And in this message, we will talk about our approach to obedience in every facet, to include our approach to writing laws for our land in the practice of righteousness in justice. See, incrementalism is different than immediatism. Immediatism is advocacy for immediate, uncompromising abolition. This means advocating for abolition bills alone. God says, you shall not murder, and every bill that we run to deal with abortion must say, you shall not murder. Everyone. No one. It shouldn't give legal immunity to anyone to murder. Now, why is this critical? Why is this critical? 
Because today, in this message from 1 John 3, I want to obliterate the demonically hatched scheme that says, if it saves even one baby, it's better than doing nothing. Did God really say? The doctrine from this text is this, those who do not practice righteousness are deceived and of the devil. That's what the text says. Those who do not practice righteousness are deceived and of the devil. Here's our outline. We have four main points. You must not allow yourself to be deceived. Obviously. You must not allow yourself to be deceived. Second, you must practice righteousness. You must practice righteousness. Third, if you practice sinning, you are of the devil. I'm just taking the points directly from the text. If you practice sinning, you are of the devil. Fourth, it's a question for all of us. Will you and your work be destroyed by Christ? Will you and your work be destroyed by Christ? Let's look first at verse 7. You must not allow yourselves to be deceived. You don't want to be deceived, I'm sure. If you do want that, you probably need to reach out to one of your pastors immediately. And guys are up here. Um, you must not allow yourself to be deceived. Look at verse 7. The Apostle John, our brother, says this, little children. This is an earnest tone. It's an urgent tone. He's looking at each one of you as though he's taking up one of your children and saying, son, daughter, this is desperately important. Look at me. Look in my eyes. Listen. Little children, let no one deceive you. That let no one is make sure. Make sure that no one deceives you. John is speaking to you and me and saints of all times. Those who believe and rest in our Lord Jesus. He gives a command. You have a responsibility in your life to make sure that no one deceives you. Now, even the best of us can be deceived, can't we? We're deceived in various ways. Sometimes we don't even know it. And we have to go back and repent after the fact. Oh, I've changed my position on this, or I've changed my practice. I was doing something that was sin, but I didn't know. And we repent. And Christ forgives those sins at the cross. Now, throughout this epistle, the first John and second John and and third John, there are numerous false teachers. There are many of them. Look at, flip over to 1 John 4, 1 through 2. And you can read it right there. What are these claims of the false teachers that, that the Apostle John is dealing with? He says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So this means that some of the spirits, some of the things that will be presented to you that can deceive you are not from God. They're demonically hatched. Look, he keeps going. 
For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says that there aren't just a few. This threat is not very serious. It's the opposite. He's saying there are many, and they've gone out into the world, and you can guarantee you've come across it because he's telling you don't be deceived by it. Now, how many times have you been confronted by demonically hatched schemes? Nobody knows. But you can guarantee it's happened to you, and you must be on guard. That's why he's writing this text. Keep going. Look at verse 2. But this you know, or by this you know the Spirit of God. How do we test them? Well, here is the test. Every spirit or law that confuses or that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And you could say that about laws. Every law that confesses Jesus Christ is king, he is Lord, then that's from God. But if a bill or a law or some deceptive teaching comes to you and it denies the Lordship of Christ, don't be deceived by that. It's demonically hatched. John provides this test for discerning teachers and teachings. Does the teacher, this law, which teaches, we know that laws are tutors. We see that in Romans and in Galatians 4. Does this teacher or this law which teaches exalt the lordship of Jesus Christ or does it deny his divine right to rule? Does this law deny the crown rights of Christ? If it says in the bill, well, you can protect some lives, but not these others, it's like saying, did God really say? Surely, surely God would want some lives to be saved. We'll get the others later. Is that what God says? Is that what God says in the sixth commandment? You shall protect some lives and leave the others to protect later because it's okay. You just did what you could. You got what you could. That is hatched in the pits of hell. It's not from God. How will you keep yourself from deception? You must practice righteousness. This is the second point. You must practice righteousness to be righteous. He goes on. Look in verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As Christ is righteous. Your righteousness must be mirrored after Christ's. It must be after his practice. Remember, John is talking to Christians, and these are saints who have been made righteous by faith in Christ and him alone. Christians are people who have been declared righteous on the basis of their faith in the passive and active obedience of Christ alone, not on their works. You're not declared righteous on, your, on the basis of the works that you bring before God and say, is this enough? It will never be enough. 
You would have to be infinitely holy and eternally good to then stand in front of the infinitely holy and eternally good God and not be consumed by his righteousness. And since you're not that, Christ had to impute, he had to credit his righteousness on your account and stand in front of the consuming fire of God's holiness and his wrath that was against you. And he nailed that sin and to the cross so that you could stand righteous with the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. And you are not righteous in a salvific sense by your practice of righteousness. But after you're born again, and the law comes to you fulfilled in the hand of Christ, there's nothing left for you to fulfill for salvation. What you're left with is now the law says, this is the good works that you are to do. They've already been fulfilled. Now you need to go and glorify God in this way. And we look to the law that's summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. It's summed up. What's the law of God for me? Well, it's summed up in the Ten Commandments. It's also written on your heart. When you practice that as a Christian, that's what he's talking about. You're not righteous before God based on your works. But he wants you to practice living like Christ lived. That's what he's addressing here. He's not telling people that you can earn right standing with God by practicing righteousness. It is not working to be justified in Christ. That is self-righteousness. God condemns self-righteousness. In Galatians 2.16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, just to reiterate this, John is not encouraging Christians to practice righteousness as a way to earn heaven. Practicing righteousness, though, is your joyful obedience to the law of God as summed up in the Ten Commandments from love to God by faith in Jesus Christ and love for your neighbor. This is the third use of God's law. The third use of God's law is to guide Christians into the good works that God has planned for you from before the foundation of the world. And the, they are then those things that are the essential aspect of keeping the rest of the Great Commission. It is then teaching the nations to obey everything that Christ commanded. That's why he left you here, to teach them about the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And in that way, you practice righteousness. You obey him because you love him. Where else would we go? We have a God like this that we get to serve and be found in. And the more I obey, the more I get of him, not salvifically, but functionally. You're abiding in Christ, and you're experiencing the joy of communion with the God of the universe, who has come near in Christ, governs you by his Holy Spirit, and teaches you to practice righteousness. Good works are the proof, then, that you are righteous perfectly in Christ, they do not assist the righteousness of Christ or serve in any way for your being declared righteous before the throne of God. 
The Puritans would say that good works are for your comfort. You need comfort. Am I in Christ? Well, are you obeying him? If you're obeying him, take comfort. Obedience is, I tell my kids, you're not obeying if it's not right away, all the way with a happy heart. Right away means I'm completely trusting you. All the way means everything that you say is best for me. I'm not going to retain some of my will here on this and fight you for it. And a happy heart means that's where the, that's, you cannot obey apart from a joyful, content heart in Christ. That's the 10th commandment. It has to do with your contentment. The Puritans would say that the good works are for your comfort, the benefit of others, and ultimately the glory of God. The point of the law that comes to you in the hand of Christ for Christians is to guide you by the Holy Spirit's aid to glorify God in your works. God breathed out all Scripture to teach and to reprove and correct, and we miss this part often, to train the saints in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Verse 17 says, why did the Scriptures come? Well, for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training you in righteousness, so that the man of God would be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, let me ask you, I'm going to put a fine point on it. Is writing bills that would say, Abortion needs to be outlawed immediately, and you must give equal protection to all lives from fertilization, which is conception. Is that a good work that you are equipped to do? Well, you say, I'm not a legislator, but can you tell him to do that? Should you? Why can't you? There's no reason you can't. So should you? Then do it. And maybe some of you need to run for, for office. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a legislator. But I have a duty before God to glorify Him. I have a duty before my church. They charged me to do this. I have a duty before my children. Good men have to stand up. And we're not good in, our, in and of ourselves. We're good because we are saying, I'll obey Christ. I'm going to practice righteousness. And my church is going to hold me accountable just like God's going to hold me accountable for every law that I vote on or every bill that I seek to pass. Just like he will for you in your daily life. Practicing personal sanctification by being conformed to the character and the commands of Christ is your duty, but it's also your joy. It's a duty and a delight. You want to be happy? Well, happily obey. You want to experience an, a greater fullness of the joy of Christ? Well, obey. Do these things that he has put before you. For legislators, then, to practice righteousness, and you need to know this because you need to hold your legislators accountable to this, God has commanded that they, as his servants, protect the innocent, that they be a terror to evildoers, and they avenge 
those who have been harmed. So for legislators to practice righteousness is to order God's world according to God's word and to never tamper with it and never practice cunning like that cunning serpent. 2 Corinthians 10 says this, that God's word in Christ is authoritative to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and every and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So the chief end and the chief aim of Christians is to worship God and enjoy Him forever by practicing righteousness and bringing the law and gospel of Christ into conflict with all the worldliness and unrighteousness. And the gravest evil in our land currently is child sacrifice. Any strategy that we use to rescue preborn children must be worthy of and in alignment with the everlasting dominion of Christ and His rule, and it must be a strategy that endures from generation to generation, and we don't look back and have to repent for it. How much repenting did we do because we said that black people were not fully human? They were only partially human. And we had laws that said that it took three black people to equal a white person, a three-fifths compromise. We must not try to set up better man-built worldly kingdoms or legislators who build a little bit better worldly strategies. We're not trying to build a better earthly kingdom. We are seeking first the kingdom of heaven. We are praying that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are fighting with the Lord's weapons and His battle that He has put in our hands. And then we say, like we said earlier, leave the success to God. You are not commanded to worry about all the results of your obedience. God's going to do that. How much of our anxiety is, oh my goodness, what will happen about all these things? It's not that we aren't to be wise and think about them, but we aren't to worry. We're to obey and let God have the results. He's going to be really good at handling those things. Cast your cares on Him and let Him care for you. We must unapologetically stand on the Word of God as our final authority when we call abortion murder and demand due process and equal protection for all without showing partiality that God hates. Incremental laws are the present-day examples of cunning and tampering with the Word of God that we must reject as tampering with God's rule and His authority in His world. These bills, like heartbeat bills, are cunning. They are demonically hatched. They are not Christian. They do not practice righteousness. They say, did God really say? Does God really want his world ordered like this? Do not accept them. Do not practice them. Third point from verse 8. If you practice sinning, you are of the devil. If you practice sinning, you are of the devil. Look at verse 8. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Puritan Robert Law says this, sin is fundamentally the denial of the absoluteness of moral obligation. It's a repudiation of the eternal canon of right and wrong upon which all moral life is based. In other words, to sin is to assert one's own will as the rule of action against the absolutely good will of God. Thus, it is but truth to say that every sin contains in germ the whole of infinite evil. Whoa. You think about your sin like that? My sin against a holy God contains in germ, in a tiny version, the whole of infinite evil. To practice sinning is to make a habit out of turning away from God's eternal canon of right and wrong revealed to us in Scripture, written on your heart, and based on the holy character of God. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Flip right over. You might not even have to turn the page. Look what he says. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, these things are not from the Father, but they are from the world. How'd they get into the world? By the devil. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with all its desires. What's that mean? It's being footstooled by the authoritative rule of Christ. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's the saints who are marching against the gates of hell and will prevail. And it's, we are attacking this evil world with its desires. They're passing away, he says. But whoever does the will of God, how long do they abide? forever. Now, do you think our laws should mirror that? Should our laws mirror whatever does the will of God? It will abide. We won't have to go back and repent for writing this wicked law that practiced some evil. Just as no one is born into the world in a state of neutrality before God, laws are not neutral. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light. How how does he blind eyes? Well, when a girl walks up to an abortion mill, which we saw in Norman in 2016, Norman, Oklahoma, she said, uh, one of uh, of the guys was pleading with her, and uh, she said, it's okay, my baby doesn't have pain. My baby won't experience pain. She knew it was a baby. And she said, it won't experience pain. Now, who taught her that? Who taught her that a baby in the womb won't experience pain? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light. And you know what else does? Laws. Laws taught that girl, my baby doesn't know pain. I'm going to kill it. That's what pro-life laws do. You cannot get away from the the pedagogical nature of law. It's teaching, it's corrosive, it's acidic, 
on culture. I was in a senator's office uh, two years ago challenging his position on incrementalism, this advocacy of change by degree. And I asked him, are you a Christian? He knew my family for years. And I asked him, are you a Christian? He said, well, yes, of course. I said, do you believe that life begins at fertilization, which is conception? Well, of course. And yet, I said, you run bills that do not protect life from fertilization, but instead let mothers and others know when they may kill a child. Is that something that God would have you do? That's a hard question for someone to answer. They don't like that. But it's effective, isn't it? Is that something God told you to do? Or did you just kind of concoct that? Well, his secretary attempted to come to his rescue because he was sweating and crying. And she scoffed at me. And she said, you can't question whether he's a Christian or not. I didn't ask if he was a Christian or not. He said he was a Christian. I took him at his word. Christians do what God tells them to do. I said, I didn't question him. His works indict his confession. I want to give you four corrosive effects of incremental bills. Unrighteous incremental bills by nature practice sinning. They do not practice righteousness. Here's four corrosive effects. Number one, incremental bills contend with the conscience instead of cooperating with it. You want a law on paper to contend with a man's conscience or do you want it to work in line with the conscience that God has given us to approve us or accuse us before the law that's written on our heart? So if the external law that's written by man that's on record, is contending with the conscience, then who's right? Well, if that man is, is practicing sin, then we want his conscience to accuse him. But if the law says it's okay to murder a child up till 15 weeks, or up to 16 weeks, or for a mother to do it, then she's got this conscience that is from God that's telling her, you are murdering a child. You must not do that. You are accused before the holy God, your judge. You will stand before him. But the law says, it's okay. It's okay. Should that be? Our laws on paper should never contend with the law of God that's working on our conscience. When those are in harmony, now you have a society that's not corroded by our laws. Incremental laws are acidic. Second, incremental laws corrupt culture rather than correct culture. They corrupt culture rather than correct. Incremental laws that say when, where, how, and why you can murder a preborn child flood the culture with doctrines of demons and the doctrines of men and enshrine cultural decay and enslavement, not thriving and liberty. Third, incremental laws encourage guilt and condemnation rather than direct one to Christ for forgiveness. 
incremental laws encourage guilt and condemnation rather than direct one to Christ. Incremental laws in that way are good tactics for manipulators and cult leaders, not Christians. When a culture is flooded with guilt and condemnation by laws that do not point to the joint to the character of God, that culture becomes hopeless, depressed, and despairing. And when it gets desperate for a way out, it will invent solutions that will be extremely destructive. And that's where we are finding ourselves right now. Last, number four, incremental laws inscribe commandments of men that enslave rather than declare the holy law of God that points to freedom in Christ. They inscribe commandments of men that enslave rather than declare the holy law of God that points to freedom in Christ. I want to give you... uh, just very, very quickly, six ways that incremental bills train people to practice sinning rather than practicing righteousness. This is just going to be quick bullet points. If you want all the scriptures that go along with it, I'm happy to give those to you. Incremental bills train people to practice sinning because they, one, promote or allow exceptions to the legal protection of our preborn neighbors. They promote exceptions to the legal protection of our preborn neighbors. promote or allow exceptions to the legal protection of our preborn neighbors. Second, they compromise God's holy standard of justice. Compromise God's holy standard of justice. Third, incremental bills promote God-hating partiality. God hates partiality. Where you let the guilty go free and you punish the innocent. You make the innocent the prey of the wicked. Fourth, incremental bills train people to practice sinning because they challenge God's lordship over the heart and the conscience. They challenge the lordship of God over the heart and conscience. They form a new law that you're to obey. And it's a serpentine theocracy. Five, incremental bills train people to practice sinning because they reject God's command to repent of sin completely and immediately. They reject God's command to repent of sin completely and immediately. These bills then are ways and means of closing our eyes to child sacrifice. And God hates that. We must establish justice for them immediately. Unequivocally, abortion is murder and we need to treat it as such. Okay, last, number four. Will you and your work be destroyed by Christ? That's the last heading. It's a question for all of us. Will you and your work be destroyed by Christ? Look at, look at 1 John 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The story of the world can come down to this verse. In Genesis 3, we see Satan, the liar, the deceiver, the practicer of unrighteousness, questioning the law of God. Satan knows that God has ordered his creation according to his holy character and his word. And that cunning, fork-tongued beast came to God's image bearers who crowned God's creation and posed this simple question. Satan slid this simple question into the minds of all humanity. Did God really say? 
Such a slight little modification, a minuscule modification, tempting them to consider whether there may just be another way. Did God really say? Ephesians 5.11 tells us that Christ came to expose and destroy the works of the devil, and we are not to take part in their unfruitful works of darkness. We must expose incremental bills, not take part in them. It's the exact opposite of how we should be looking at these laws. Incremental bills take part in the unfruitful works of darkness instead of exposing them. To frame impartiality as law is to bring the idols of Moloch and Baal into the camp, parade them around our states and around our nation, and then inquire of them. Oh, and then we order our justice system by their abominations over against the holy character of God. If you do that, God will put you to shame. Colossians 2.15, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Is that how you want to be looking up to Christ? In open shame for promoting, passing, writing laws to murder babies? Even laws that said, but if we just save one. If you frame impartiality as laws, God will give you a beating. Luke 12, 47 and 48. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, he will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. Now there's different degrees here. Here's the, here's the reality. The works of Pharisees and false teachers will be destroyed. These works of Pharisees and false teachers, they relax the law of God and they teach others to do the same. They corrupt the commandments of God by allowing exceptions that God never intended. God never intended for allowances for murder to be codified into law. Abortion allowances are unthinkable because of, are thinkable because of original sin and pharisaical usurpation of the law of God and the character of God. To legalize these allowances for assaults on those who bear God's image is, is to legalize allowances for assaults on God. Lying about God's law is treasonous mutiny. It is never harmless. When a nation authorizes idolatrous assaults on God, God is obligated to protect, to protect the profaning of his holy name and his image bearers. Oh, oh saints, plead for mercy from our righteous judge. God of mercy. God of justice, bring repentance on us before your hot, fiery wrath befalls us. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Psalm 7. 
God's warning to those who with Fer- those with Pharisee hearts towards God's rule. Through the prophet John the baptizer, Jesus says, his acts of judgment is swiftly laid to the root and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Would you on the day of judgment with the same mouth that uttered, uttered I to unrighteous laws, allowing for the murder of babies, cry out for entrance, Lord, Lord, while millions of murdered image bearers, cut down by your laws, gaze upon their Lord in his righteousness. No, it is not enough to confess Jesus is Lord with the mouth and deny him with our legislation. Why would we imagine the master would be lenient to a lawless servant? No, the Lord Jesus is not flattered by empty compliments and proclamations. Lord, Lord, but do you do what he says? Outward pronouncements unaccompanied by inward obedience are noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. You just prove your resting in Christ by your obedience to Christ, or would you have the appearance of godliness but deny its power? If you love Christ, you will submit to his ruling. You will obey his law, but do not mock him and call him Lord if you will not. The mouth may utter, but the heart speaks. God is not mocked. Take heed how you treat the little ones, the least of these. Our Lord forewarns. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Saints, we must practice righteousness in our lives and in our legislation. That law that says when, where, why, and how you can legally murder a child and who can do it is from the pits of hell. We have to cast the sentiment that even if it saves one, back to the pit where it came from. Did God really say, well, are you going to obey? And if you're a Christian here today, you can know that obedience is yours. God will get the glory for your obedience. He'll also decide whether that law is going to be passed or not. He ultimately is in charge of the results. So I want to encourage you today, if you are being convicted by the Spirit, this is a grace that's come to you, receive that grace, confess any participation in those things, repent, and if God is raising you up to to become a legislator and pass laws of equal protection, then obey that too. Otherwise, let us be fed by the word and receive it with gladness and go and tell others the same about the good news that you've heard that God will do his good work and he's going to use you for his glory and you're going to be so joyful to see what God does. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your time. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for, your, for the saints. We thank you that the saints have the spirit of God in them and you've given us the word and you convict us and correct us and you change us all for your glory and our joy. Lord, would you do the work that you set out to do by your word today? And would you build these saints up? In Jesus' name, amen.